All right, would you please take your Bibles with me once again this morning and turn with me to this great book of Exodus that we've been going through and find chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, last week we looked at the beginning of this confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. We saw this first round of plagues. This morning we're going to see the second and third rounds, plagues four through nine. But far more importantly, we're going to see something emerging here. Starting with the fourth plague and continuing all the way through to the end of this confrontation. So have your Bibles open, Exodus chapter 8, and let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, once again, we look to you and we ask for your help. God, that is not just some kind of perfunctory thing that we do. We need your help. And so, God, would you, in your, you are ever so gracious, you're eager to care for us now. Lord, we know your word is powerful. You spoke and worlds came into being. And now you're going to speak again through your word. And we know that it's powerful to do things in us, things that need to be done, places that need to be shored up, new things that need to be put in place. God, a vision of you that needs to be restored so that we might walk in faith and in great confidence. So God, speak to us, we pray. Make your word powerful to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you don't need to show your hands, but I'm wondering... Have you found this book of Exodus interesting so far? I mean, it's just so interesting from a purely historical perspective and and as a piece of literature, sometimes we forget that Moses, who wrote this book, was educated in the royal palace of Egypt. He would have received the finest education that was available at that point. And so as Moses later in his life sat down to record these events, what he wrote under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, in addition to being God's very words, was real history and very engaging literature. I mean, he produced this incredibly well-written historical account. And I know many of you have had the same experience. You've shared it with me, marveling at the layers and the foreshadowings and the connections, all of this interplay of words and themes that we've already seen in this book. But let's remind ourselves this morning, this is not just history. This is not just great literature. We've got to keep reminding ourselves, as interesting and as educational as this is, we can't let it be reduced down to just that. This is God's Word. This is God 
speaking, yes, through Moses, but speaking to us. And, and God's Word is here to tell us something about Him and to tell us something about ourselves in relation to Him and to tell us something about the gospel, the good news about God's intention and His power to save and how He does that in so many ways, Exodus, is just directing our attention out to what God will ultimately do through Jesus, the great deliverer. I mean, in this book, God is saying, I want you to know me. I want you to see me. I actually want you to be confronted with the powerful truth of who I am and what I'm doing. I'm at work to rescue and redeem, and that has everything to do with your life. Yes, God says, I showed a particular interest in a particular nation, Israel. But that is just a part of a much bigger thing that I'm doing. That interest of mine and that activity of mine with Israel, it leads into this huge purpose of mine that touches all humanity, and all of human history. So let's keep our eyes open as we make our way through this book. And today I want us to see something, a very important component of God's larger purpose. Here it is. Very simply put, this is what I want us to see, God knows how to preserve his people. God knows how to keep those who belong to him, by which I mean he does preserve his people. This is the truth that is going to emerge so clearly, so powerfully as this cycle of plagues continues. So I want to show you that this morning because it's really important that we know that every one of us will be in situations, no doubt multiple times in your life, maybe you're in one right now, where it will be really important for you to know that God is a preserving God. He knows how to preserve His people. So I want us to see that. It's here ever so clearly in these chapters, but then, having seen that, I want to show you something related to that truth that just might blow our minds a little bit this morning. But let's start with seeing what emerges as this cycle of plagues continues to unfold. Last week we saw plague number one, all the water in Egypt turned into blood. Plague number two, frogs everywhere. Plague number three, gnats, these little crawly creatures covering everything. And we've seen a pattern has been established. Moses tells Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh refuses. God sends a plague. Pharaoh relents, at least for a moment. He, he pleads with Moses to pray to God to stop the plague and promises he'll let the people go. Moses prays. God stops the plague, and Pharaoh hardens his heart and refuses to let the people go. So, God continues his display of power and judgment, plague by plague, steadily building in their severity this mounting body of evidence of God's sovereignty and power and his intent to accomplish his purpose. Let's look. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, 
Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. Notice that. We'll come back to it. So that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he told us. So Pharaoh said, I will not let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. I'm sorry, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Now, there's something new here, right? Look back at verse 22. On that day I will set apart the land of Goshen. That's where the Israelites had settled. I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I'm the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. It's the first time we've seen this. This deliberate act by God of preserving his people from judgment. Why, why does he do this? Well, there's two reasons, obviously, to protect them so that no swarms of flies shall be there. But second, look at the rest of that verse. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Yes, he's preserving his people, but... In the process, he's sending a message to Pharaoh. And now, going forward, that's what we regularly see. Look there at the fifth plague, chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And let your eye go down to verse 6. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh actually sent to check this out. And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. 
And look at the sixth plague, these boils, chapter 9, verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln. We're not sure, but it's likely that that kiln was the very kiln that was made to make the bricks the people of Israel were using. So here's God saying, take that, that result of that hard labor, and let Moses throw that in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. Some have suggested that what Moses was doing right there was just mimicking the Egyptian sorcerers and priests who would often take their sacrificial ashes and cast them up into the air as a sign of blessing on the people. And I recognize that the division between the Egyptians and the Israelites doesn't get explicitly stated here, but notice what gets emphasized in verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. I mean, the magicians themselves are afflicted. In fact, their humiliation is so complete, we never see them again. They disappear from the scene. And look at the seventh plague, the hail, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And let your eye go down to verse 23. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. God deliberately, miraculously preserving his people. And please take a look at what we see in verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. What? Pharaoh? I have sinned? The Lord is right, I am wrong? Well, we might wish for it in Pharaoh, but there's, there is no real repentance here. He needs to confess his sins to God, and he needs to confess all his sins. And most importantly, he needs to turn away from his sin, which he did not do. Look at verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. True repentance, listen, true repentance is a complete change of heart that produces a complete change of life. And it turns out that Pharaoh did not want a change of heart. 
He just wanted God to leave him alone. I mean, here we see the danger of what we might call partial or temporary repentance, which is really no repentance at all. I mean, just forget about Pharaoh for a moment. Think about yourself. Are you doing anything like this? Maybe trying to bargain with God? Maybe trying to get things to go your way? Maybe trying to hang on to a little something of your sin? Take warning. It is dangerous to do that. Real repentance is an all-or-nothing thing, and God does not like being trifled with. So, look at what comes next, this eighth plague with these locusts. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither you nor your, neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. And then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. I just want to mention one thing here. Egypt had a whole litany of gods and goddesses to guard and protect their crops. A god named Min, a goddess named Isis, Nepri, Anubis, Senehem, who was, by the way, the divine protector against crop-eating pests. There is this really interesting statement in the book of Numbers that I read this past week. I'm guessing many of you read it as well. Listen to this. This is Numbers chapter 33, verse 3. They set out from Ramesses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover. The people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. And then perhaps the most unnerving and powerful sign of all, look at the ninth plague there in chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Again, God deliberately preserving his people. You know, I suppose it was inevitable that before God was finished, he would make a direct attack on what the Egyptians revered and worshipped most of all, the great sun god. For three long days, this land of almost perpetual sunshine was swallowed up by what verse 22 literally speaks of as a dark darkness. And look now at verse 24. 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. I mean, Pharaoh's still trying to hold something back, still refuses to give up, still trying to maintain control, like so many people who will do this thing and who will do that thing that they think will please God. They're willing to give a little as long as they don't have to give up living for themselves and how they want to live. Verse 25, But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Now, we are not going to look at that final devastating plague today. That'll be next week. But let me just show you how this separation that we've seen continues. Look at chapter 11, verse 6. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Look at chapter 12, verse 12, 4. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, what are we to make of this? Well, it's clear God knows what he's doing. He is able to very precisely do as he intends. Afflict there, protect there. Judge there, preserve there. These are no random happenings. This is God acting. And in the midst of it, God shows that he knows how to protect and preserve those who are his. I imagine there are many here this morning who could stand up right now and give testimony of God preserving you through really challenging times. I know I could. For me, probably the clearest experience was in an extended time of deep emotional and spiritual distress. It happened about 10 years ago. It felt like it was going to be my undoing. And during that time, God led me to Psalm 5, verse 12. He will surround you with his favor as with a shield. And I lived on that truth for months and felt almost daily God's preserving grace on my life. Now, let's step back and ask a question. Why is God doing all of this? All this that we've seen in th these ongoing plagues, especially this purposeful distinction between 
Egypt and his people? Well, there's an answer to that question that comes through so powerfully in these chapters. Do you remember when Moses and Aaron first went and spoke to Pharaoh and how Pharaoh responded? I mean, it's a really significant moment. It's a pivotal moment. Look back with me for a moment to chapter 5 and verse 1. After Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And from that moment on, the Lord is going to give Pharaoh and his servants and his wise men and all the Egyptians an education about who he is. So that Pharaoh and all the others will know. Now trace along with me once again. Chapter 7, verse 17. This is in connection with the first plague. Chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 10. And he said, Tomorrow, Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like our God. Now look at chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And it's not just Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Listen, God is taking Pharaoh and all observers, including ourselves, through these ten plagues, and preserving his people in the midst of them in order to establish himself as the God of all creation, of all the earth, so that everybody knows that he is the great God of everything. That he, Yahweh, is God. That he, Yahweh, is the only God. That he, Yahweh, is all-powerful and sovereign over everything. I mean, these plagues, they are given by God. They they are signs and wonders. That's what God calls them. To show us his absolute power, the absolute sovereignty of God. They demonstrate his absolute control over all of creation, that he has all authority in heaven and on earth over nature and over any so-called gods. And they demonstrate his right to judge those who oppose him, and to preserve those who have entrusted themselves to him. Both in very particular situations like this, and ultimately. I mean, it's no mere coincidence that there will be an echo. In fact, more than just an echo, there will be a great heightening of these signs again when God comes to judge. We read about it in the book of Revelation. 
the plagues that will come on the earth against mankind with those blasts of the trumpets and the pouring out of those bowls, they correspond remarkably to these plagues. Water turned to blood, painful sores afflicting mankind, great hailstones falling from the sky mixed with fire, locust-like creatures tormenting people, the sun being darkened in the sky, and all through that, those who belong to him will be preserved. Here in Exodus, in his power, in his judgment, he is ruling, and everybody can see it. He is God all-powerful. Listen, there is no hope, no comfort apart from that bedrock reality. Friends, your life, your help, your restoration, they all begin right there, that Yahweh and he alone is God. But through it all, all this that we've seen shows that God knows how to preserve his people. He is faithful to his covenant promises. He sees, he hears, he knows, and he's able to save. He knows how to preserve and keep his own. Remember chapter 9, verse 14? Um, 16, chapter 9, verse 16, but for this purpose... I have raised you, Pharaoh, up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. I mean, the plagues in this particular moment, in these particular circumstances, are God's means to make his name known in the earth, both for those who oppose him and for those who have entrusted themselves to him. He has authority to judge and he has authority to preserve. But now, having seen that powerful, amazing, I hope faith-strengthening truth, let's ask the question, who are his people that he is able to preserve, that he is so committed to preserving? Well, from these chapters, it's obvious, right? It's Israel. They are his people. They're the ones, as opposed to the Egyptians, that throughout these chapters we see God act to preserve and to protect and ultimately to rescue out of slavery and into a promised place of goodness and freedom. I mean, they're named time and again, the Israelites. But I want you to see something that might blow open our thinking a little bit. Look ahead with me to chapter 12 and verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them. In other words, in addition to the Israelites, there is a large number of non-Israelites being rescued in this exodus. We see here that there is some untold number of non-Israelites. We don't know how many, but enough to, quali to qualify as a multitude. And we know from later references in the books of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy that among this mixed multitude were Egyptians. They are named. And actually, we got a little hint of that back in chapter 9, verse 19. Did you notice this? Chapter 9, this is in the plague of the hail. God is kind of giving some pre-instructions. Moses says to Pharaoh, Now therefore send, get your livestock 
And all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. You see that? Some Egyptians are paying attention and they are turning their allegiance away from the false gods of Egypt to the one true God. God has his people among the Egyptians. God has his people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And all along the way, other non-Israelites will be gathered in and grafted in. I, I think about Rahab, a prostitute of all things. She's a Canaanite. There in the city of Jericho, when the Israelites finally enter into the land of Canaan, she had heard of what God had done in Egypt with his great hand, and it had led her to believe that he was the one true God, and she turned in allegiance to him in faith, and she is incorporated into the people of God, and in fact, she ends up amazingly, wonderfully, being, being part of the, the ancestral line that leads eventually right to Jesus. Rahab, a Canaanite. And this kind of thing just keeps happening over and over again. Non-Israelites, they hear about the great name of God and his mighty works, and they are grafted into God's people. You know, at one point while he was on earth, Jesus, who had come as a Jew to the Jewish people, he stood before them and he said these words, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. I mean, aren't you glad? Because for the vast majority of us, we are among these other sheep. We're part of that mixed multitude, Germans and Italians and Africans and Koreans and Chinese and, my goodness, even Norwegians. You fill in your own ethnicity. I want you to see something this morning. This is the thing that if you've been tracking, not just intellectually but emotionally through these early chapters of Exodus, this is the thing that might blow your mind. Flip over with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 19. I'm almost done. Isaiah 19, maybe in your Bible, you'll see at the head of that chapter, a little heading, an oracle concerning Egypt. Well, look how it ends, this oracle. Look at verse 19. Isaiah 19, verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and, and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing 
And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be a third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. Did you know that was in your Bible? Friends, God is doing a mighty work in the, in the world, in all the world. And this situation of his people in Exodus is a pattern to help us see how God is and will be toward all his people. And it helps us to see God is committed to preserving his people. He knows how to preserve his people. And what is true here for these people of God is true for all God's people. So let me leave you with a little picture of God's people in God's hands. Several years ago, I was flying with my two daughters. I think it must have been on a ministry trip to Mexico. And we ran into some really turbulent air. Plane started to bounce around quite a bit. People were getting nervous. And my two girls, they would have been maybe 11 and 12, they both looked up at me with question in their eyes. We all right here? And I took my hand and I said to them, look, this is God's hand and this is you. You're right here. You're in God's hands all the time. And that's the safest place to be. And even if this plane goes down, you don't need to be afraid. Listen, if you belong to God, he has promised to hold you and keep you and preserve you, not from every bump in life, not even from really tough times, but from anything that would threaten your real safety. Just listen to these amazing words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your word to us this morning. You know where you want it to go. Get it there. We pray 
I pray that for myself. I pray that for every person in this room. I pray, God, that you would give the humility necessary so that each one of us prays that as well. God, bring your word to where it needs to go in my heart. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in our faith so that we might live not just in obedience, but in great confidence, great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.